morning and welcome to the Completely Unnecessary Skeptical Podcast. I'm Nathan and joining me today is Craig. Hello. And Susie. Hello. We have got some feedback email from our other listener, Philip. Hi, Philip. Hi, Philip. <laughs> Hang on a minute. I've met at least two listeners this week and neither of them were Philip. So we have at least three or four because we've got Evil Sloshy thing. Evil Slosh and And Philip. the lady we met at Skeptics. And some Someone random has. man that I met on Queen Street on the bus stop. So we do have listeners. And sometimes Alex and Raina ask about it as well. So I think they listen to it. But Hello, people... everybody. <laughs> yeah. Hi, all five of you. Thanks for We listening. have several. Several listeners. Uh, actual feedback from Philip. Now, I'm going to read this out. Um, blah, blah, blah. Sound was much better. Yay. We finally, I think we've figured it out now. Anyway, maybe you want to mention on your next show that the Children's Play Company in Tauranga Chipmunks advertises that if your child takes a spill in the play area, that they can be seen on site by a company called Lil Spines. And I inquired and found out that it is indeed chiropractic. This worries me a bit. Is there an age restriction? I will send you a link. All the best, Philip. Susie, what is Chipmunks? So it's a, a soft play kind of area so essentially they take this like warehouse and they shove it full of um uh kind of climbing frames and ball pits and stuff and really high slides and it's fantastic because you just sort of chuck the children in it yeah. and then they so go. it's all it's all padded it's walls all, yeah, padded and, and, and all this kind of stuff and, stuff and just sort of leave them to it and it's fantastic that's and, quite awesome um, actually i've been there a couple of times they usually sell really bad coffee i think these places are doing it all wrong they should have wi-fi and good coffee and then the parents would be happy to go and leave the kids for hours. Anyway, as a parent, we would have to And just for, for uh, reference, <laughs> if anybody does go and visit um, Chipmunks, they do frown on adults playing on the equipment. <laughs> uh, never mind. You're not playing carefully. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's what it is. It's basically a little childcare area where you can dump your kids for a couple of minutes while you have a bad coffee and no Wi-Fi, apparently. They do children's um, parties and stuff. So Evie was at a birthday party this morning, just... At chipmunks, you, they feed them fried food and then let them go on this amazing. <laughs> yeah, brilliant idea. Um, fantastic little company, and they're they're all over um, New Zealand, as far as I know. Um, particularly in Tauranga, obviously. And if you go to Tauranga Chipmunks, you can have your child treated by a chiropractor. Only if they're injured. Well, it did say if they're injured, but I'm. They, they have a chiropractor on site permanently? That or? is the... Now, to be fair, this is just an email that I've received from Philip through the Contact Us form on our website. Um, I have not actually had a chance to verify any of this information. Um, he has, though. He's written them an email. and this is the reply that he got back from them. Uh, Hello, Philip. I have been forwarded your request for information via Chipmunks Tauranga. As you are obviously aware, this is a children's clinic run out of, though independent of, Chipmunks Tauranga. The clinic is run by two of the chiropractors from Tauranga Chiropractic, based in Harrington Street, Tauranga. If you are able to give me some background regarding the nature of your request, I can possibly be more specific regarding the information you require. If it is regard to how we may assist a complaint or health issue for a child of yours, then if you are specific about the nature of the problem, we may be of some more assistance. Uh, assistance. Thank you for your inquiry, blah, blah, blah. 
And that sounds a little bit to me like they're being very, very careful in what they say. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Um, so that they don't get themselves in trouble because uh, there are some chiropractors, some, who claim to be able to t- treat things like colic and bedwetting. God, you name it. Bullying and... Anything that ails the child. <laughs> basically, yes. And um, I have seen it advertised. Um, they'll put a sign out the front claiming to be a doctor and that they can cure colic and bedwetting. So, uh, I'm well, one of the questions, I suppose, is are they actually uh, actively recruiting patients while they're at the chipmunks? Or at least are they offering services other than emergency back care? Uh, which I'm still not convinced that they're qualified to offer. Well, I guess the, the problem is that um, by being there and providing a supposed service to children who are supposedly injured, it's a way of sort of getting into um, the parents' minds that chiropractic is a good thing that children should be uh, exposed to, and I guess it's a way of generating new a new patient numbers, you know, more patients. Raising awareness. There's certainly yeah. nothing on Chipmunk's website that has anything about any chiropractors linked to them, so... Yeah, so I found Chipmunk's website, and they just list all their places. Okay. So it's a, so I think a it's a franchise. Um, there is, but it's got nothing other than the address, so nothing that says anything. Um, You'd hope that the chiropractor, the uh, the Chipmunk's places were safe enough that the the children wouldn't be able to do the sort of damage that chiropractors might jump in and say we can help with. Yeah, but you know what kids are like. And it doesn't matter how padded something is if you've got ten of them all bouncing on each other. It could still break something. I think it would be better to have a physiotherapist on site. Yes. But physiotherapists don't need to uh, drum up business from impressionable <laughs> young solo mothers. I'm... <sighs> <laughs> That's terrible, I, I, I don't know why I said that. I think you should move on. <laughs> um... Yeah, uh, that worries me a little bit too, Philip. So if anyone has any more information about that, or if you want to send an inquiry to Chipmunks... Or if you're interested in having your child treated. Yes, just pop down to to Chipmunks. And something that's very important to point out is that... Now, hopefully someone will give me some better information. um, Up to a certain age, a child's skeletal system is very... What's the word? Delicate? Developing, malleable, malleable and, and um, yeah, uh, shouldn't be doing chiropractic on children. I think is the um, takeaway message there. Yes, um, but I'd just, I'd say it's probably more dangerous for a child mm. than for an adult, especially if um, the child then grows up to have regular <laughs> spinal adjustments because that's what they're used to. Okay, so that's our feedback from Philip. Thank you. It's a slippery slope. Yes. Um, no interesting notice board news going on? No? Good. If you're in Auckland, though, um, you could keep an eye out for the Shore is Magic, the Shore City Magicians Club annual fundraising show. It's at the Rose Theatre in Belmont. And I want to say September off the top of my head. So if you're in Auckland in September... Uh, have a look out. Uh, tickets will be on iTicket. Should be uh, available from now. And moving on to some news. 
first item is from Susie, and you want to talk about the measles vaccine. Well, the measles vaccine rush, in rush. fact. So apparently, parents are rushing to get their children immunised um, in New Zealand, and this is because we've had a couple of outbreaks of measles so far this year. There was one earlier on in January, which I think was sparked by somebody coming on a plane, possibly from Australia, with measles. Um, but anyway, there's been another one more recently in sort of June, July time. There's been over 100 people, more like 120 people infected. Um, and what the Ministry of Health, I guess, is saying is that they've actually noticed a spike in the number of um, vaccine doses being uh, requested. So this is the MMR vaccine for measles, mumps and rubella, uh, which some people have a problem with. Um, it seems like some of the some of the up, lack of uptake might just be apathy. apathy. Certainly for the MMR, you get two doses, so their kids get a dose before they're two, about eighteen months or something, and then they get another dose when they're four. Um, and really, to be mostly, you know, to be it's it's most effective, you need to have the two doses. And um, according to ministry figures, about ninety percent of two-year-olds are immunised, but only more like seventy-five percent have reached their have got their second dose. Anyway, so apparently the average doses a month is about 4,000, but after the outbreaks, they've seen spikes of more like six or 7,000. Um, so that's really good, and this means that we can get those vaccination rates up and we might be able to stop these kids getting measles. I guess the difficulty, difficulty is that the, vac the actual dosages are so far apart in time that people might go along for the first one and then forget about doing the second yeah. one. And, yeah. It's certainly good news for agents of the New World Order. And uh, the more people we get implanted with those mind-control chips, the better. You're not meant to mention that, Nathan. Oh, shit. Did I say that on the, on the podcast? I'll, sorry, I'll edit that out. Let's hope I don't forget. Uh, okay, good. So that's good news about measles, finally. Okay, the next news item is from... Oh, it's me. I'm talking about augmented vision. Okay, I'm just going to read this as is because it pretty much um, sells itself, I think. LED lights make augmented vision a reality. Okay, this is just freaky. We know LED lights are versatile enough to be used for practically anything, but LED contact lenses? Really? Yes, as it turns out, really. Okay, this is the good bit. University of Washington researchers have figured out how to implant semi-transparent red and blue LED lights in contact lenses. Wait for it. For the purpose of receiving and displaying data in sharp visual images and video. This means wearers will literally be able to watch TV or view photos that are projected. You ready for it? You ready? Directly onto their eyeballs. Ah, was that good? Was that as good for you guys as it was for me? How, so, how would that? Yeah. So if you're going to have from from the picture I'm looking at, so there's a ring around the outside. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so so how, how does this actually project onto your retina, presumably, not your eyeballs? The picture may be a bit misleading. Um, I don't know if that's what it actually will look like. Um, my understanding is basically that these LEDs are semi-transparent, of course, so you can see through them. Um, but they're laid out in such a way that they make a matrix. And they're a small enough size that they can project reasonably high-quality images. 
and when they're on, you can see the light, basically. So you get a, I don't know, say a thousand of them across. So we're bypassing the glasses with the TV built in. Well, you can, they can already do that. Um, so this is the the next step. And in fact, I first heard about this um, when I was reading Michio Kaku's latest book, uh, Physics of the Future, where he's making some intelligent guesses about future technology, um, sort of medium to a uh, short term, medium term, and long term. And um, I'm hoping this was under one of his short term predictions because here it is. And they're doing it. Um, I'll just read a bit more. Cause but will they be disposable contact lenses? I imagine that you'd probably throw them away after a while. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's brand new technology, obviously. So it's it's prototypes at the moment. When you start mass producing something like this, I mean, it it will. It'll be it'll be disposable, presumably with some sort of Bluetooth built in. Once miniature green LEDs are developed, and they're in the works as of now, full colour displays will be possible. Once that happens, the possibilities are endless. Think of anything your smartphone can do right now, and imagine the same being possible for your eyeball. This is just hurting my head. I can't quite... It's because you're too old. This news is a little scary and a lot fascinating, if you ask me. At the very least, with LED contact lenses, your hands would be free to pet your robot or tinker with your hoverboard. <laughs> so um, credit this website, actually. The website is elementalled.com. I'm just reading his article. Uh, you don't think they might have a vested interest in uh, promoting LED products? Okay, I will admit that. There could be a bit of bias from this website. It's quite old, though. This post is from January. Oh, well, we should be able to go out and buy them now, then. So there's some legitimate questions, obviously, and some of them are in the comments here. Um, how do you power it? And, um, of course, how do you communicate? So, like I say, possibly um, possibly Bluetooth. Um, oh, okay, I'm spent now. I'm done. <laughs> so, we'll move on. And um, <sighs> yes, okay. Susie again, wanting to tell us about the Atheist Bus Campaign victory. Yeah, Yay, so this victory. goes to the States and the Central Arkansas... Transit Authority. So, Qatar and its advertising ag agency have been found to be wrong to reject the atheist ads that read, Are you good without God? Millions are. It seems like they didn't actually reject it, so perhaps that's a little misleading. Um, what actually happened was the agency required um, the, uh, who is it, the Uni United Coalition of Reason um, to put down a $36,000 deposit to run the $5,000 campaign. But they also required a $3 million insurance policy. So this is essentially just so that if anybody uh, mucked up their buses. So the, there's a nice quote from the attorney for the United Coalition, Coalition of Reason. Um, Qatar is a government agency and it has made advertising space available to churches. Yet when we tried to get the same treatment as those customers, we were told we would have to make a deposit against vandalism and terrorism, which are terrorism, which is a requirement no one else had imposed on them. So absolutely, they were not getting the same treatment as um, as churches. And a federal judge has seen that and said that they've essentially violated their free speech by, by essentially refusing to run them. Um, and so she, the the judge, has said 
you know, find in your favor. And she's just required the coalition to place a $15,000 bond with the court in case there's been any damage. With the bus company? With the court. Oh, with the court. With the okay. Court, um, in case of any damage to the buses. So while they still have to do this, it hasn't at least gone, and they haven't had to do this $3 million insurance policy. Um, so it's interesting. So it's not quite... They weren't quite, quite reject, rejecting the ad campaign, but just putting clauses in it that they that they didn't put for anybody else. So clearly. Now, the, the point I wanted to, to go back and focus on was the bus company effectively saying, or broadcasting, um, hey, come and vandalise these ads because the people that put them up will have to pay for it. I mean, you're actually encouraging vandalism. There must be rules against that, surely. If only there was a commandment in the Bible that said about not vandalising buses. <laughs> the point that a lot of people are raising is that the bus company is allowing for the fact that Christians are more likely to vandalise an ad on a bus than, say, atheists would be to vandalise an ad that a religious group has put up. Because obviously the religious groups aren't required to put in that deposit. So that's so a very interesting point, that the, perhaps the churchgoers might be dabble, might dabble in some criminal activity, which sort of brings me very nicely to the next sort of little related part of the story. So that's, um, again, relating to the atheist campaign, this time on billboards. Um, so, I'm not quite sure, this is in the States again, but I'm not quite sure where, but anyway, so the, um, this time the Freedom From Religion Foundation rented a billboard from a company called Clear Channel, and it was a, an atheist billboard. Um, it turns out the billboard was on land rented by a church, and so the pastor of that church asked, well, in fact, ordered the sign to be removed, um, the foundation responded by looking into the, Turks, the church's taxes. Oh, that was quite interesting. So religious organisations are tax-exempt, but not for property on which they collect income other than donations. And they hadn't declared. So they were getting revenue from, yes. from selling from so space for the ads. Yeah, so it was not only that, but it turns out they had a property next door that they um, had a dentist's office in, they also set claims uh, running a real estate office from their church. So they're doing quite a lot of things in their buildings um, and not declaring them. And so um, now apparently an auditor is going to be going and having a look. And the atheists are saying that perhaps this is um, more common uh, by churches than, um, than we might think. And I think that's quite interesting. Now, what I thought was interesting about that, if, I think if you read a bit further down, it actually says that the pastor owns that land, not the church. So his, he's quoted as saying, and I'm not going to quote because I haven't got it in front of me, um, he owns the land and he didn't think he had to pay taxes because he was donating the money to the church. So it's not the fact that the church owns the land, it's actually a private individual who owns that land and is um, not paying his taxes. Because he's just assumed that because he's a pastor, he doesn't have to pay taxes. The whole religious exemption from tax thing is completely stuffed up. It, it is an interesting point, though. From from the, the bus company's perspective, though, you can see that putting a, and 
an inflammatory ad on the side of their buses is likely to encourage vandalism. And so, so how far should the should the bus company go in order to accommodate anything anybody wants to put on their buses? And how much of a how much how much of a sort of a guarantee fund should be required from the advertiser to 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 indemnify the or to to cover the the bus company for potential vandalism? I mean, I'm not saying that the vandalism is is should should be expected because in an ideal world people should be able to express ideas without um, having things like vandalism done to them. But no, I disagree with you there. I think that vandalism should be expected, and precisely for the fact that I, I can s- totally see the point of view of the bus company, because odds are that if you put up an atheist or a humanist message on a bus, the Christians will vandalise it and they will get upset about it. And there will probably be death threats and people walking off the job. Because because the message that it's possible to be good without God is offensive to them. Mostly in the US. Although we we did have the same sort of objection here that the employees of the bus companies didn't want to be driving a bus that had an ad on it that was saying God doesn't exist. Something to think about. Oh, now this is one I particularly enjoyed because uh, I've always sort of been told that this wasn't the case. But it is possible, according to new-ish research, that there may be a genetic link to human intelligence. The University of Manchester students, working with colleagues in Edinburgh and Australia, have provided the first direct biological evidence for a genetic contribution to people's intelligence. Um, Previous studies on twins and adopted people suggested that there is a substantial genetic contribution to thinking skills, but this new study is the first to find a genetic contribution by testing people's DNA for genetic variations. Is it really true that people didn't think this? I think that it's... Uh, I mean, I've always I always assumed that intelligence had something to do with genetics. It makes sense, but I remember having conversations with people. But that doesn't mean it's true. No, that's that's exactly my point. Just because it seems obvious doesn't necessarily mean it's true. And I think what people have been saying is that um, it's I, I suppose the the underlying message is it's probably more complicated than that. Well, of course, it's a it's a case of nature and nurture yes. playing a part. So there's some genetic component, but then also people, intelligent parents who want to raise um, intelligent children are probably going to spend much more time concentrating on their education and, and so on, which is going to result in them having uh, a higher measured level of intelligence. Yeah. Where it, um, it, it's, it's not as simple as that is where you get down to things like um, eugenics, where just because you've got intelligent parents doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be intelligent. And just because um, two people are incredibly stupid doesn't necessarily mean that their child can't be intelligent. So unfortunately, just killing all of the stupid people isn't necessarily going to work. Not that we would endorse that anyway. The Completely Unnecessary Skeptical <laughs> podcast does not endorse the killing of stupid, stupid people. people. Or any people. <laughs> or anyone, I suppose. Well, let's, let's, not rule it, let's not rule on that one just yet. I guess the point is that they haven't 
you know, there is a genetic component, but as always, it's not one gene, it's a huge number of genes. So it's going to be really interesting to find out what those genes are and what it is that they're contributing to, what roles are they playing. This is the start of a very long road. And the genome is not a blueprint. No. We can now use the findings to better understand how these genes interact with each other and the environment, which has an equally significant contribution. Um, with, our collaborators, with our collaborators, we will take this work forward to find the biological mechanisms that could maintain our intellectual abilities and well-being in late life. So obviously they're looking at this from the point of view of diseases like Alzheimer's and so forth, but also possibly in the future, genetic engineering, Gattaca. Well, having been Gattaca. deceived, rise of the planet of the apes. Oh, have you? Yes. Was yeah, it any so, good? So, uh, yeah, it was it sounded right. a bit cheesy, I didn't know. If it was, uh, it was all right, but, but they had a drug that was designed for Alzheimer's, which they um, put into the chimps uh, to test it and, turned, and um, made the chimps much more intelligent and thus uh, beginnings, the beginnings of them taking over the world. So is that what it was? Was it, was it a prequel to the last one or something like that? Okay, so that's, I think, enough on that, unless anyone has any comments about it. Okay, and the uh, news article we've all been looking forward to, which I'm sure is going to make this our highest rating podcast ever. Uh, what turns women on? And um, let me see. Uh, Susie, you can do this one. <laughs> well, thank you for asking, Nathan. So, underneath your headphones is a strip of brain tissue that we call the sensory cortex, okay? And this is where the neurons um, that link to different parts of the body exchange information, right? And so you guys have seen that really kind of funny picture. It's called a sensory homunculus, which is the picture of the man spread over his brain and he's got... Um, his genitals are lying next to its feet, and it's kind of like which bits of him are located where in the sensory cortex. Do you have you seen that? Picture? I haven't if seen not, that. If we'll not, no. we'll put a link to it up. Um, and it's to show. So the size of the body parts on that picture show how much of the brain is dedicated to processing the sensory information from that body part, right? And hence we're the, in the brain. Yeah, so yeah, half the, the brain will be devoted to the eyes, <laughs> and half to the oh. genitals. <laughs> Anyway, so that, that diagram was published in the 50s and it was done, um, it was developed after experiments conducted during brain surgery um, on conscious patients where the surgeon stimulated different parts of the patient's brains and then the patients reported which bits of their body they could um, feel sensation in. What's really interesting about this is of course that it was done on men, so it's not been done on, on women. So they knew exactly which bits of the brain stimulating the genitals related to, but not women. Now, so exciting, scientists have, have looked at um, so women's sensory cortex. I can't believe it's taken them this long. It would be the first thing I'd do. So Dude, does this know? work on chicks? <laughs> and that's why you're not a scientist, <laughs> <laughs> So what's really interesting about this is, of course, is they've, is they've used a really cool technique, which is functional MRI. Um, so they're using, I guess people call it brain mapping, um, where you can see... Changes so in the blood flow yeah, in the so brain. Changes yeah. in the blood flow. So that's what the, the MRI gives you a picture of. And by getting women to stimulate themselves in various regions, can they're looking at... Can you explain this in more detail? <laughs> so what they've done is they have mapped the locations of the vagina, the cervix, the nipples, the clitoris... Um, to all the bits of the sensory cortex. Um, 
presumably, I mean, the problem is I can't get hold of the paper. It's in, it's in a really cool-sounding journal, um, which is, uh, for some reason, even with Imperial's login, I can't get. It's called the Journal of Sexual Medicine. Oh, my God. How do we not have a subscription to this? I know, this journal? I know. <laughs> this, is one of the, this is one of the scholarly articles that you would read Penthouse for. What the scientists have found is what women have been telling men forever. Stimulating the vagina is not the same as stimulating the clitoris. There you go. What a surprise. Didn't we already know that? Well, now you know it by functional MRI. I just love the idea of these women being in an MRI machine, fiddling with themselves. It's just so fab. Um, so they found that the um, vaginal stimulation gave you different uh, areas stimulated compared to the clitoris, but they also found a direct link between the nipples and the genitals which they say may explain why some women can orgasm through nipple stimulation alone. That I, I didn't know. That's lovely. But I really want um. to try that out. <laughs> Only works on women, Nathan. <laughs> You'd have to have one to try one out on. Quite me. So if there's any volunteers, you can contact us through the contact us form on our website, thecusp.org.nz. Now, if we can just get this podcast out before the Skeptics Conference, you might have it. <laughs> there is, of course, a very important reason for doing this research rather than to give men the evidence they need to start playing with women's nipples and clitorises. Men don't need evidence. To anyway. <laughs> Was <laughs> they hoping that having this information um, could help women who've suffered nerve damage in either childbirth or disease, apparently. I'm not quite sure how, but anyway, that's what they're saying. And I guess this sort of links into what I was going to talk about next, um, which is just a very quick note. So I keep a very close eye on Jill South's Fit and Well column in the Weekend Herald because she covers all manner of stuff, and I've moaned about her in the past. I think we talked about her um, possibly last month or the month before, where she was talking about asthma, and yes. the thing that she said was, in the future I'm going to contact an expert, which I will remind her about. Yes. But anyway, so this week she's writing about bladder control issues and pelvic floor muscles. So it's all kind of related, pelvic floor muscles are very important. Um, but what's really uh, interesting about her article this week is that She's got a little thing that says what she's going to be talking about next week. And next week, she's going to be researching high-dose vitamin C. So I shall be waiting for that with bated breath. Let's see if she does actually talk to the experts or whether she goes and does Do we know what her C research practice. process is? Well, we don't. So perhaps I should contact her and see if she needs some help. Um, does she need access to the, the proper channels? So she probably just types high-dose vitamin C into Google <laughs> and sees what comes back. Yes. <laughs> yes. Anyway, moving on. Hello, this is George Hrob, and you're listening to one of the most aptly titled podcasts of all time. Yes, it's CUSP, the completely unnecessary skeptical podcast. Uh, next, we have some Woo Zealand items, and the first one is Lord Christopher Monckton. Yeah, so we had a visit from British nobility, Christopher Ooh. Monckton. Because well, British nobility impresses the heck out of New Zealanders. So well, well didn't we also have Robert Winston here? Isn't he a lord? Oh, he is. Actually, so we could we could talk about that a little bit. Okay, so um, Christopher Monckton, or the third Viscount Monckton of Bletchley. He's a British politician. Um, he's very interesting. He's head of the policy unit for the UK Independence Party. So I'm going to talk about this for a while, because I think I want you to get a feeling for what this guy is like. Okay, so UKIP... 
this UK Independence Party, um, call themselves a non-racist party, seeking Britain's withdrawal from the Uni European Union, which you can kind of see the sort of the benefit of now, in hindsight, with all the European economies crashing. But anyway, they um, oppose multiculturalism and political correctness. So perhaps non-racist, um, but really interesting, one of their manifesto points is that they would require all media, businesses, schools, and colleges to use imperial alongside metric measurements. What? <laughs> anyway. They're a bunch of nutters. They are. What? So, what? so he's one of theirs. <laughs> Um, so he's also a climate sceptic, and he's been in Australia on a lecture tour discussing climate change. And so those lovely people from the Climate Realists and the New Zealand Climate Science Coalition, who aren't really scientists, um, well, I guess some of them are, uh, they invited him over to New Zealand. Um, his Australian tour has been plagued, I would say, by venue, venue cancellations um, after he referred to the Australian government's former climate, climate advisor as a fascist and displayed swastikas next to his quotes and his talk. Well, you know who this guy would probably get on with? Kenring. <laughs> anyway, so his New Zealand tour um, was a couple of weeks ago, or, or 10 days ago or something. Um, he was in Auckland, Wellington and Whangarei. <laughs> he started with, um, so he started in Auckland with an interview with um, a well-known climate denier on um, News Talk ZB. Then he had an, a lunch Who at the Northern that? Club. Um, was that Leighton, Leighton Smith? Smith? Right. Then he had a so lunch at the Northern Club, and then he he had an evening talk. And they were trying to get originally they were trying to get um, a climate scientist to debate with him, but nobody stepped forward because they were all like, "Well, what's the point? He's crazy." But they were all afraid of him. They're all, they're all terrified. Clearly, yeah. um, I think they just thought it was not worth the effort of giving him any air. Uh, then in, he was in Wellington the next day um, where the Public Relations Institute of New Zealand hosted him to go talk to their members. And his the title of his talk was, Is Global Climate Change Another Y2K? They kept the meeting closed, which meant that it wasn't allowed to be recorded, which has got a number of people up in arms about it because they feel it should have been recorded. Um, what's interesting is that apparently this meeting was sponsored by Four Winds Communications, who are a PR company in Wellington. But they also have a number of interesting clients and past clients. So um, Petroleum and Exploration Association, LPG Association of New Zealand, Gas New Zealand. Can you see a bit of a theme going on here? So they may have an interest in promoting a little bit of dissension about, or disinformation Well, they're about. not just a PR firm, but they're a lobbying firm as well. Well, possibly. Certainly they have clients who have been, you know. Anyway, and then the next day he went to Whangarei where he hosted an event, or he attended an event hosted by Farmers of New Zealand. He was interviewed on the Country Channel, and we're going to put a link to this, because there is a the interview is fantastic. He had a complete meltdown. It was really quite funny. Um, the, this. It's really good. So he, the, I can't remember who the journalist was, but he was fab. He just sort of threw some signs at him and <laughs> he just went a bit kind of... Anyway, so I want to tell you a little bit about Lord Monckton because it's in, he's interesting. So first of all, his title, so Lord Monckton. So he claims to be a member of the House of Lords. So for anyone who doesn't know, the UK has two bits to its parliament. So it has the House of Commons which is the, kind of the lower house, and then the House of Lords, which is the upper house. So it's pretty much, I guess the way it was designed was pretty much what it says. So the common, House of Commons was essentially the commoners and the House of Lords was essentially the peers. And um, it used to be 
so that so the House of Commons makes the laws, the House of Lords essentially ratifies them. And it could be it used to be that the House of Lords could actually chuck stuff out if they didn't like it. But um, a few years ago, there were there was a massive overhaul of the House of Lords, and so essentially they've sort of removed that power from them. <laughs> They'll be really useful in the states at the moment. But anyway, um, so the House of Commons is democratically elected. The House of Lords isn't, and it used to be that it was just you had to be a hereditary peer to get into it. So most hereditary peers were kind of made by your ancestor doing something useful to king or queen. I don't know. Um, it could be, it could have been, you know, finding a foreign land, and then they came home and they got lots, given a title and lots of land, stuff like that. Um, but there are other, there are other things that you could have gotten it for. Um, and so, Lord Monkton, um, his grandfather was Minister of Defence, and so he was made a peer in 1957. And so his dad then became peer, and then he did when his dad died. So if you're a peer, are you automatically in the House of Lords? You were. Until a few years ago, when they removed that act, that, but they did an act of law to remove the, the, the automatic right of a peer to sit and vote in the House of Lords. So now um, you get there by appointment, so the government essentially elect people, like Lord Winston, to the House of Lords. And it's only for your lifetime, so you don't pass that title on to your children. The title or the appointment? It's the same thing. It's a it's just a title now. It's not. A, I mean, I, I don't think anybody gave Lord Winston any land. He's probably got enough. But anyway, um, so, and although it's kind of interesting because, of course, it's the same sort of thing. It's it's sort of potentially for fa it's supposed to be for service, but you know, it could be for favors or for support or money given. But anyway, it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be to make it more um, more open and, and more democratic. Interestingly, the 26 bishops of the Church of England also serve in the House of Lords, and they're known as the Lord Spirituals. I didn't know that, so I have learned something. Anyway, what, so Lord Monckton is a hereditary peer. Um, he does not have the right to sit and vote in the House of Lords, but he asserts that that act that brought that into being is unconstitutional, and so he continues to refer to himself as a member of the House of Lords, which is really interesting because... Um, in July, the House took the unprecedented step of essentially publishing a cease and desist order on him. <laughs> so they put on their website um, a letter to say, you are not a member of the House of Lords. And so it, fin it ends, I am publishing this letter on the parliamentary website so that anyone who wishes to check whether you are a member of the House of Lords can view this official confirmation that you are not. Um, because he was also using the symbol of the, the House of Lords, so their portcullis and things, on his on his stationery. So he's kind of modified it slightly, but anyway, they're, they're pissed. Okay, so I have had a little further look about this guy. And um, so because he's a UKIP um, person on UKIP's website, there's a little bit of a biography. UK Independence Party. So the fact that he's representing them, does that mean he's actually trying to get into the House of Commons? He's been trying to get into the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Is that even allowed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So well, if you're not allowed in the House of Lords, then obviously you can go in the House of Commons. But if he was, would he then also be allowed you to be in the House of You can sit in both Okay. Of yeah, you can now. Now, I don't think you could. Anyway, on his interests, he's got climate, cures for infectious diseases, hill walking, historic buildings, inventions, uh, romance, sailing, theology of economic, economics, his wife. So he's interested in his wife. He is. But the cure for infectious diseases got me really intrigued, being a microbiologist. And in fact, he goes even further to say that um, he has invented a cure for Graves' disease and other chronic infections. So what's Graves' disease, I hear you ask? 
Susie, what's Graves' disease? <laughs> yeah, what's Graves' disease? It's an autoimmune disease that he himself suffers from, um, where you have an overactive thyroid. Well, presumably, if he's invented a cure, he wouldn't now suffer from it. Well, I'm glad you asked that, <laughs> because one of the symptoms of an overactive thyroid is very bulgy eyes. So I suggest everybody go and have a look at this interview with him, where he went a bit crazy on the Country Channel, and you'll see he's got eyes the most bold. bulgy eyes. So I would say that he probably hasn't found a cure for Graves' disease. But nevertheless, he is director of Resurexi Pharmaceuticals. And they have put some pat filed some patents, which we can. There's nothing about them anyway, um, where he claims to have cured various infectious diseases, including Graves' disease, multiple sclerosis, influenza, herpes simplex six, and um, they've even done some work with their first HIV patient. And he says tests continue. So. Resurexi Pharmaceuticals don't seem to have a web presence. They don't have a website. I can't find anything about um, any ethics applications to do any tests on people, you know, any phase one, phase two, phase two, anything they're not doing. Um, so that's interesting. Um, they do have a company registration just to an address in Scotland, and they don't seem to have filed their accounts this year. So um, anyway, so he's their, he's their company director. Well, he's too busy speaking about he's climate change denial. So he's, yeah, so he's a, he's both an immunologist, microbiologist, climate change, or climate, climatologist, um, he's a peer, um, I think he's a bit of an opportunist, to be honest, and I found an interesting um, thing about him that when um, the AIDS epidemic first started, he waded in there, and he, and he wrote an article, well. he didn't, but he had a solution, <laughs> and that was to screen the entire population regularly and quarantine all carriers of the disease for life. Okay. That seems fair and reasonable. Compulsory. Oh, how do you pronounce Compulsory. Yeah, that one. Immediately and permanently. There you go. So this is the man. Pretty crazy. <laughs> oh, I just so loved that. I mean, I just, I didn't know. I knew he was crazy, but I didn't know about his infectious disease stuff. Um, which obviously as a microbiologist I find really interesting because if he's found, you know, if Resurexi Pharmaceuticals have found a cure, then, you know, wow. But they just seem to be, yes, they don't seem to have a lab or anything. So it'd be interesting to know how he's doing that. There you go. Okay, so moving on to the next Woo Zealand is about sleep drops. And it's Susie again. Somebody posted this to the skeptics mailing list because they'd heard an advert on the radio which used a child voice to suggest that um, their parents should be giving them sleep drops to help them sleep. I didn't, haven't heard the radio ad, but I thought this was really interesting. And so I thought, well, let's have a look at them. So um, sleepdrops.co.nz uh, support natural sleep. And they say, go to sleep, stay asleep, wake up refreshed. And they sell sleep drops, which contains 25 of the best known natural sleep aids in one convenient formula. So in fact, it combines 14 of the best known natural sleep aids, herbal sleep remedies, in one convenient formula alongside... Um, the added benefit of including 11 homeopathic remedies and the perfect blend of flower essence remedies. In fact, they even say it's really, uh, it's really funny. I'll get, that, 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 get to that in a minute. Okay, so this is Kirsten Taylor. I'm going to read you her, um, her abbreviations. She's a dip ND, she's a dip med herb, a dip nut, a hubd, and a divinced net fruit. 
Currently, <laughs> naturopath, medical herbalist, nutritionist, naturopathic sleep specialist, and managing director of New Zealand Health Shop Limited. So, what do these sleep drops contain? I hear you yell. Susie, what do these <laughs> sleep drops contain? A proprietary blend of glycerin, ethanol, purified water, and then a whole load of... With homeopathic... Escolzia californica, humulus lupus. Do we know what those are in real life? Lavender. We could find it out. And those ingredients are in order of quantity as per normal? Including coffee crud. Oh, coffee crud. It's homeopathic coffee crud. Actually. Oh, coffee, right, coffee crud. Okay. So, hang on. Uh, oh, yes. How does homeopathy work again? You do the opposite thing. So if you give them coffee, that's you make them the, sleep, That's right? the, the hypothesis, yes. So if you gave them, what's the, the particular ingredient everyone was talking about? Melatonin was the other one. Melatonin. If you give them that, what is it supposed to do? I thought melatonin made you sleep. Or does it keep you awake? Yeah, that's what it is. No, it is. It's, that's the effect that the real ingredient has. So when you homeopathize it... Yeah, but we know that doesn't work. So, But this is how it should work. It should keep you awake. Same as you take caffeine in your sleeping pills. So one of the skeptics did email um, Kirsten and ask her about the um, homeopathic melatonin. And her response was, it's there to remind the body to use melatonin more efficiently. Be interesting to know how. Anyway, I, I want to I want to read you what it says about what she says about her product. There are lots of products that are just herbs, just homeopathic, or just containing flower essences, but none of them combine all of these approaches in the special formulation I have put together. It's not just the ingredients, but the way they have been formulated to act synergistically with each other. Not only that, but we have developed a special manufacturing process that enables us to deliver results without herb drug interactions. That's a really big deal, she says. <laughs> Crazy people. If you read right down to the bottom of her fact... Oh, there is something. Yeah, because there is a... There, she says there will be a response with um, tetracycline and quinoline antibiotics. Yes. Nah, you lying little wench. Um, anyway, so it's $112 for two bottles. Um, a bottle contains 120 doses... And what you do is you take a dose every half hour, starting two hours before you before bed, and then you take a dose if you wake in the night and repeat half hourly if necessary. <laughs> it's clearly not working if you're yeah. repeating it. Anyway. How's this for weasel words? What can you tell me about the effects of sleep drops? Legally, I due can't. to New Zealand MedSafe regula regulations, I'm not allowed to go into any detail at all about what results people can expect from my sleep drops, but the name of the product pretty much covers it. I think enough said. Yes, everyone can go and have a look. And if you want to write, if you can find anything on the website that violates any laws, <laughs> make a complaint, because the Commerce yeah, Commission does, does rule on things from time to time, particularly if it's clown-related. <laughs> well... If people want to spend their money on this sort of stuff, well... No, that's not that's no, not an acceptable excuse, no. because people don't know. It's all very well saying, well, it's really obvious that this is all bollocks, but sure, sure. people are being told one thing from us... If you go and spend some money on it, and you expect to sleep better, you probably yes. will sleep better. True. Yes, but then there's there's other problems with that, like... Isn't it, isn't it just a placebo? No, it's not, because it has active ingredients yeah, in it as well. Okay. And if, the, if it works for this, why wouldn't it work for that? And then they've got cancer 
or but it says sleep drops on you? the bottle. Why would that cure cancer? Not the same product, but you know what I mean. Yeah. But a cheaper way of doing it. So these they're, they're not very big. These bottles, sixty mils or something, I think I saw somewhere, um, and they're one hundred and twelve dollars. Okay, so they're sixty dollars, seventy dollars each, right? Now, the the ingredients. The second ingredient is alcohol. So it would be way cheaper to get a bottle of brandy, and just put a little bit of that under your child's tongue or under your tongue. Um, the completely unnecessary skeptical podcast is not endorse the <laughs> giving of alcohol to children. Well, um, but yeah, I, I take your point. I, I wouldn't. But isn't that what a, isn't that what those flower essences are anyway? Aren't they just brandy? And people give them to kids. Yeah, it does have a high. The liquid stuff does have a high alcohol content. And yes, people do feed them to children. But I don't think that justifies giving a child brandy. But it's the same. Th- I mean, I'm not suggesting you give them a cup of brandy. I'm suggesting you give them, you use the dropper. And I'm, all I'm saying is you'll get a hell of a lot more out, you know, more bang for your buck. Because it's a bigger bottle. That's, that's all I'm suggesting. I, I wouldn't like anybody to go away from this thinking that I feed my child brandy. Or give them some vanilla essence, which is full of alcohol. Yeah. yeah. So much so that they lock up vanilla essence in supermarkets. Do they? Yes. No, they don't. I just bought some the other day. It was just sitting on the shelf. You go to Countdown at West City and they have a locked cabinet of vanilla essence. Now, maybe that's telling you something about the people who shop in <laughs> Countdown in yes. West City. Very possibly. Um, okay, so moving quickly along to the last Woo Zealand is... Oh, look, it's Susie again. This is, this is the Susie episode, I think. Susie's episode. Magnetic blankets. So one of the things I really love, stroke hate, about these sort of about Google um, email is that, and I guess it's the same for other things, is that, you know, they, they sort of personalised it to you. So you get these kind of things popping up. And um, when I was thinking a lot about chiropractics and what I tend to do is if I find a story that I'm interested in, I email it to myself. And so I have all this woo on my, on my email. And so as a result, I get lots of woo adverts. Um, and maybe that's a, that's a discussion for another day about the sort of personalization of, of these kind of things. But anyway, but I, I got one for these biomagnetic, well, for Magnus Sleep. Um, and I just thought, oh, hey, what the hell is this? So magnetic devices are sort of being claimed to be therapeutic. And there's, there's tons of different ones. You've got, the, you've got bracelets, you've got stuff you can put in your shoes. Um, but this, was a, this is about um, a biomagnetic underlay for you to sleep on. And the, I was looking somewhere that it reckoned that the, um, the, this magnetic devices industry is worth more than a billion dollars globally. And that's just yeah. amazing. Um, so according to the manufacturers, these static magnets can cure pretty much everything. Joint pain, insomnia, back pain, blah, 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 blah. They go on and on and on. Now, Magnusleep is New Zealand's totally better magnetic underlay, according to their website. Um, it says, totally better magnetic underlay. It's all about helping you wake up to a pain-free day. We'll help you be at your best, no matter how busy, how demanding, how challenging each day is. What is it? I hear you ask. No, I know exactly what it is. <laughs> <laughs> this is it's not a news. superbly balanced mix of high-quality magnets and the very best quality wool. What's really interesting about these guys is they make a big thing about their wool. Yeah. So their their wool is wool mark certed, and um, they use... You use lamp the finest merino wool. Pretty much. So they say, you know, all the other companies will say, oh, you know, grams per square yeah. inch. It's and quite all funny that that's crap. their strategy. Considering it's just a delivery device for the magnets. Yeah. Which, um, 
is held in place with a strong adhesive then individually sewn around so that if the magnets come out you know if they come undone they won't no, come they, they can't come undone they won't cause uncomfortable lumps or disturb the magnetic um, field they're also placed in a special strategic pattern based on information they just made up off the top of their heads. What's really interesting about the website is they have this lovely phrase at the bottom of the website that says, Skepticism is healthy. We enjoy debate with those who wish to debunk our products and we accept that there is still much to be learnt about the functions of biomagnetic therapy. All we ask that skepticism all we ask that skepticism comes with an open mind. Remember that not so long ago our finest minds insisted that the earth was flat. That old argument. Sight <laughs> anyone? Um they're, so they give they give a few references on their website to experts who think that the world was flat. No, to uh, the static magnetic therapy. Um, oh, the research. Yes, I was interested to see if you could. Um... But what's really interesting about them is that they're not really references. So they give the ti- they give a title, a list of author, and then a conclusion. And I tried looking for the first one by searching for the authors on PubMed, and I couldn't find that title under the three papers that popped up. So I think that maybe they're publishing conference abstracts or things, things that haven't actually been peer reviewed. That was just the first one. I didn't I didn't I didn't I didn't have the energy to look for all of them. What I did find looking for those first two people was a publication um, which is titled Static Magnetic Field Therapy for Carpal Tunnel Syndrome, a feasibility study. And I'll jump to the conclusion which was Significant within-group symptomatic improvements of the same magnitude were experienced by participants in both active and sham magnet groups. No better than placebo. No better than placebo. So I also found an editorial in the British Medical Journal, the BMJ, talking about this um, biomagnetic stuff. Um, And their take on it was that controlled experiments were really difficult to do because people know that they're magnets. People have people have evidence that they're magnets, um, so you can't actually blind for them. I think you probably could if you could control the environment. Right. If you didn't give them anything metal, they wouldn't know the difference. Yeah. So they make two points. The first is that if human tissue were affected by magnets, one would expect the massive field generated by magnetic resonance imaging (MRI) to have profound effects. Yet the much higher magnetic fields of MRI show neither ill nor healing effects. Is the first point. And the second point, they say that patients should be advised that magnet therapy has no proved benefits. If they insist on using a magnetic device, they might as well buy the cheapest, because at least this will alleviate the pain in their wallet. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, so back to the research. Mm-hmm. On their website, I think it's probably the first link that you looked at, um, the conclusion of that was blah, 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 magnets are awesome and they work yeah. in a therapeutic way. Yeah. I don't know really what my question is. How do they come to that conclusion? And what's the, what's you don't know because you can't find it. Yeah, I don't know because I because I can't find it. But I know that those people pub, that those same people published the study saying it was no, there was. No. So those three authors came to a different conclusion on the paper that you did find. Yes, but the paper that I did find was looking at something else. Ah, right. Um, it was looking at carpal tunnel. Whereas the other one was looking at, it was about fibromyalgia. I think the way their product works, though, is that they've just got a, a comfortable um, wool underlay 
you're not comparing it to another comfortable wall underlay that doesn't have magnets in it. And if you went from a, an uncomfortable bed, and if you go and buy, uh, well, if you go and shell out a few hundred dollars, then you're going to have the expectation that it's actually going to make you feel better, and that will make you feel better. Which is also one of the points they make in the BMJ thing, was there. Interesting personal anecdote about that was um, a few years ago at my grandparents' 60th anniversary, and um, middle of the festivities, all of a sudden, um, one of the aunts stands up and says, oh, we've all put together and bought you this lovely present, and they opened it up, and what it is a bloody magnetic underlay. I'm like, <laughs> what do I... But that's... No, actually... Ah, fuck it, it's the middle of their bloody anniversary. I can't say anything. So I sort of left them to it, and they all marvelled about how wonderful this thing was going to be for their sleeping. I actually should go back and ask them how they got on with it. Oh, it's lovely, Nathan. Thank you very much for your present. Yeah. So $315 for a single, up to 435 for a Super King. It makes you wonder how the prices compare to, say, a normal wool underlay without magnets, and what, what, uh, what, yeah, what, what sort of price portion is the magnets, and and sort of what premium are they charging for having magnets and having the reputation they have? Anyway, maybe we'll um, do some more research, and then completely forget about it. And not or maybe we could ring up the company and tell them we're trying to do some research into it and they should supply us with some underlays that we could sleep on and try them out. <laughs> Actually, yes. And tell them we'll give them some testimonials. They welcome sceptics. Yes, they, they do, you're right. Maybe That's we can combine that research with the, uh, the clitoral stimulation. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so the big exciting part of the uh, episode that we really should have gotten to a bit quicker, I hope we don't run out of time, is Susie rants about the Ponsonby news. Susie, tell us your oh my god, so exciting news. I'm really excited this month. (sighs) I'm all nervous. Go. (laughs) So, a couple of months ago, I wrote in to the Ponsonby news, I wrote a letter because I was fed up with John Appleton, the health correspondent, in inverted commas. Um, So he had written an article on um, hormone replacement therapy, otherwise known as HRT. And his article was in response to a listener article which had had talked about the risks and benefits of HRT and advised readers to avoid the internet and talk to their doctor instead if they were worried about HRT. See also, I think, our last episode or the episode before. And when you talk about the listener, you're talking about the magazine, the listener, rather than a listener of the podcast. So yes, the listener magazine. So John Appleton was horrified by the suggesting, having found the internet to be a fabulous resource for his own research. (laughs) And then he went to talk about bioidentical hormones. Did we actually talk about this? Yes, we did. Okay, so just to remind you, these are um, plant-derived molecules used in HRT as well. And the point that annoys uh, people, me and others, about this whole business is that HRT has been studied for a long time and we know the risks and we know the benefits. Bioidentical hormones are highly likely to have the same risks and benefits, but they haven't been studied as well. So, they, so to tout them as a cure or as a, an, you know, as a safe alternative is misleading, in the very least. So I had just sort of pointed this out. 
But then I also went on to say that um, month after month, he misleads readers of the Ponsonby News with his pseudoscientific views on health. He does not appear to be medically qualified, but rather seems to make a living selling vitamins and other supplements. At the very least, the Ponsonby News should do its readers the courtesy of informing them that their health correspondent may have a conflict of interest. So that was kind of my point, was that I just wanted to bring in this conflict of interest business. Um, and then I also moaned about the Ayurvedic practitioner being referred to as doctor. And so I said, Mr. Adjit does not have a New Zealand-recognised medical qualification and as such is misleading people into believing he is licensed by the Medical Council of New Zealand to practice medicine. So I have my, whole, my old page, my own page in the Ponsonby News this month. So they've reproduced my letter, not on the um, letters page, but in, on John Appleton's page. I just want to clarify this. John Appleton has devoted his page yeah. to replying to yeah. your letter. Yeah. Um, so also the editor replies about um, Mr. Singh, saying he has a Bachelor of Ayurvedic Medicine and Surgery from Punjabi University and has spent 18 years working for the government of India um, in, in Ayurvedic hospitals and pharmacies. He moved to New Zealand in 1996 where he practices and teaches Ayurvedic medicine, making him one of the most experienced Ayurvedic practitioners in Australasia. Like many people, I have benefited from Dr. Adjit's many years of experience in healthcare and feel it is appropriate to acknowledge the qualifications he attained in his home country, is the editor's view. Missing the point? You're doing it right. Yeah. Okay, so John Appleton. This month, I will respond to a letter to the editor in which Dr. Susie Wiles provided an establishment view of my article on hormone replacement therapy and at the same time chose to question my credibility as a health correspondent. So he gets really cross that I say that he's giving his pseudoscientific views on health, talking about the fact that conventional medicine doesn't have a monopoly on the truth, um, that he may not be medically qualified, but um, that doesn't mean he's not qualified to write about what he's read and learned. Um, da 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 da. Um, he says, at, so this is the bit that pissed me off the most, is I'm going to read you this paragraph. So. As I see it, there is science for people and science for profit. And regrettably, it's the latter that provides the hugely expensive treatments that come under the umbrella of conventional medicine. Science for people researches the most simple and cost-effective ways to prevent and or treat a disease or condition. Science for profit ignores the most simple and cost-effective ways and instead investigates a treatment option that can be patented and sold for vast sums of money. Blah, 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 blah. Science for people discovered all this stuff about... Um, these um, bioidentical hormones. He stands by what he says about uh, in his article. <laughs> he, 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 just, oh, he, he takes my PhD and he hits me over the head with it, which is kind of funny. Um, so he says, in a peer-reviewed study from the journal Postgraduate Medicine entitled The Bioidentical Hormone Debate, Are Bioidentical Hormones Safer and More Efficacious Than Commonly Used Versions of HRT? Um, Dr. Kent Holthoff, a real doctor concludes, a thorough review of the medical literature supports the claim that bioidentical hormones have some distinctly different blah, 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 blah. Um, anyway, so he does his thing where he doesn't tell you that there may be a conflict of interest because funnily enough, sorry, it's my phone, funnily enough, Dr. Kent Holtoff, he may be a medical doctor, but he sells bioidentical hormones for a living. He has a clinic that deals with this stuff and I can't read his journal, his journal article because it's behind a firewall and nobody I know, including the doctors I know, are able to access this this journal. So he's published in a shitty journal that 
we can't access, we don't know what his, his evidence actually is, and he has a conflict of interest. And what I really wanted to know was, did he declare that conflict of interest on his article? Because he should have done. So I'm just at the moment debating whether I want to spend the $30 to actually have to pay for his article to find that out. Um, anyway, he's, he finishes with, um, one doesn't need a PhD to have common sense, and we lay people are not as stupid as Dr. Wiles thinks. And thanks to the internet, there are no limitations on our ability to learn. So Where do you go with that? But what was really interesting, so he's done that, and then a couple of days ago, I got a parcel at work. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, 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 from Appleton Associates. And I was almost nervous to open it, because I thought, is it going to explode in my face? Or is there going to be some, I don't know, strange powder inside? Anyway, inside... Bio-identical was... anthrax. <laughs> <laughs> Which would be a really bad way of trying to do it. <laughs> anyway, it wasn't. What was inside was a DVD. Food matters. You are what you eat. Join the world's leading authorities on nutrition and natural healing as they uncover the true cause of disease. I haven't yet watched it, but I will. Um, and then a whole load of stuff. A whole load of um, non-peer-reviewed articles by people. And, and a letter. So saying, I have responded to your comments about my article in the current issue of Ponsby News. Um... I have enclosed for you some articles written about EBM, meaning evidence-based medicine, and the medical system in general. Uh, da, 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 da. We are now, where we are now with medicine is not sustainable and it has to change. For the future, it has to be about what works and what doesn't, and science for people is what New Zealanders will continue to demand. What we have in medicine today is the greatest monopoly in the history of the planet, where huge corporations have exclusive access to government funding. This is why biotech is such a profitable business. I wonder if it has ever occurred to you that you might have it completely wrong. I suspect that in years to come, we will look back and say, did we really believe that? All the best, John Appleton. So I shall Sorry. read his stuff. But, you know, the first one starts with an article about how great Suzanne Summers is. <laughs> She's a great actor, isn't she? I don't even know if I'd go that far, to be honest. <laughs> and a really nice person, because she really cares about people and stuff. She's got probably got heaps of common sense. Yeah. So he's really... I mean, it's interesting. So he's really... Like, he's really trying to educate me. I can see that. Yeah. So, the rebuttal of yours that they're going to publish, have you have you finished writing that yet? I haven't started yet. I don't know where to start. And I'm assuming they won't publish it because they've probably been given me enough time. So, it'd be really nice if anybody else read this and they felt they wanted to support me and my... You know, I mean, I was calling for... You know, I believe in evidence-based medicine, which clearly he's telling me he doesn't believe in. We can argue about that. That's fine. You know, but I was also arguing about being clear on conflicts of interest and you know the very evidence he throws back at me I'm going to say evidence in inverted commas is from someone with a clear conflict of interest I mean I don't have a conflict of interest I have no interest in bioidentical hormones or HRT other than the fact that you're a tool of big pharma well there's that as well obviously but and I, I guess I'm, anno I'm annoyed by the fact that I'm doing science for profit because oh, clearly there's a lot of profit in making mice glow in the dark although actually I could see how that could be monetized. I could see, though, if that the editor gets a lot of uh, controversy from that, le other letters coming in, he may give you a uh, another page. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't think, think so? they probably want to open the thing up for that sort of controversy. They're there to sell advertising. Will anybody, will anybody write in? Um, so the next question is, if one of our listeners wanted to read this article and... Yeah. Write a letter. How do they get a copy we of this? We will put a link because the Ponsonby News is on the web, and oh, so um, I will put a link to it, and I will put a link to the editor's email address that will, if you feel like writing a letter... And tell them how much they love this issue. 
with yeah. that lovely Susie Wiles lady in her letter. <laughs> and they could do that. wouldn't I it be great to have more of her in the magazine? <laughs> what? Why is that funny? <laughs> They'd totally believe that. Anyway. I'll probably end up blogging about this, and so we'll put a link to that as well, I think. Great. Well done, Susie. You must feel really special now that John Appleton knows <laughs> well, who you really are. Well, it was really funny because when I, I picked, you know, I'm, I mean, I am Ponsby News' most avid reader, and so I immediately went to the letter to the editor page, and I, saw, and I thought, it's not there. They haven't Aww. published it. And I thought, well, I'm going to go and see what he's writing about this week, and then he's like, he's writing about me! <laughs> <laughs> Tell the truth, it did make you feel a little bit special, <laughs> didn't inside. it? And then I got offended by the fact that I'm doing science for profit. Yes. And I thought, I'm not a tool of Big Pharma. And he's not doing anything for profit, of course. Of course no, not. No, no profit in vitamins. I'm sort of, part of me was wondering, because I did say, you know, I, I gave my name as Dr. Susie Wiles, University of Auckland, and part of me then wondered afterwards, given that he hit me over the head with my PhD, whether I shouldn't have actually done that. And I guess what I was trying to convey was that I had some, I don't know, some specialist knowledge, but that's really bad, isn't it? Because you're then fighting, oh, anyway. Argument from authority. Argument from authority. Yeah. But your authority is legitimate in this case because you know science and you know how research is done and so forth. Um, yeah, well done. That's Ponsonby News for another month. <laughs> almost almost a positive this month. Um, but a good rant nonetheless. Yes. And wrapping things up with a quote from Quake. Quote from Quake. <laughs> a quote from Craig. The fact that an opinion has been widely held is no evidence whatever that it is not utterly absurd. Indeed, in view of the silliness of the majority of mankind, a widespread belief is more likely to be foolish than sensible, according to Bertrand Russell. Ah, go Bertrand. And today's word of the day is qualtach, which is, unbelievably, a word that means the first person encountered after leaving home on a special day. There's a word for that. I just wonder what their definition of a special yeah, day is. Yeah, what's a special day? Is it well, your birthday? Well, it doesn't or? define that particular... Well, that's presumably it can be any special day. If the day is special to you, you leave your house, the first person that you enca- encounter is your Qualtark. Greetings, Qualtark. <laughs> <laughs> it does sound like something from Star Trek. Qualtark. Let me get this phlegm out of my throat. <laughs> And you've been listening to the Completely Unnecessary Skeptical Podcast. If you'd like to send us a message or feedback, check out the Contact Us page on our website, thecusp.org.nz. Debunk. Noun. To remove... Oh, it's a verb, isn't it? <laughs> to, re- to remove bunk from something. <laughs> well, you could put an underlay on your bunk. <laughs> Debunk your bunk while I'm in my bunk. I don't speak fluent Klingon. Who said that? What? <laughs>